Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our hosts, Bob Cheviar and co-host Scott Shannon. Bob and Scott are longtime teaching pros in Westchester County, New York. They have both been ranked in the top 15 nationally in men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles. Bob is also the author of Deconstructing Tennis, the 4D System. Their goal is to help players gain a more in-depth understanding of many aspects of tennis, which are often inadequately addressed during the course of their development. Bob and Scott would love to hear from you on topics for future podcasts. Hi, welcome back to Outside the Lines. I'm Bob Chevier, your host, and I'm here with Scott Shannon, my co-host. And today we're going to go back and we're going to speak some more about how to make a game plan in doubles. The title of this podcast is How to Make a Game Plan in Doubles, Part 2. And one key reason we wanted to go back and talk more about this is that we got a lot or at least some feedback from quite a few people saying, it appeared that the two of you disagreed on several important issues in how to make a game plan doubles part one. And we wanna go back and clarify and make sure that everyone understands the context in which that apparent disagreement was taking place. But before we get into that, I just wanna go back and review what we were saying was so important for making a game plan in doubles. Number one, you still, it's just like singles, you have to know yourself, your strengths and weaknesses, so that you're not be either being asked by your partner or by yourself to attempt shots that you actually don't have in your repertoire. Number two, you have to do a really good job of assessing your opponents in the warmup and sharing that information with your partner. And number three, typically, you need to find a way to be more aggressive. And in particular, we, in the first part, spoke a lot about poaching and the neglected aspect of poaching, faking a poach. So we're going to go back today and I'm gonna talk, I'm just gonna ask a question of Scott here. One of the first areas of apparent disagreement was where to serve the ball, particularly uh, in the ad court. And we're talking now about, we're assuming now everyone is right-handed. It would change a bit if we had a lefty involved. But Scott was saying that he likes the geometry solution. He likes serving down the tee on both the deuce and the ad side. And I was saying, I like on the ad side going out wide to the backhand into what is typically the weaker return. So Scott, let, let's, um, let's bring you in here and talk a little bit about the importance of geometry in making the choice that you prefer. Sure, Bob, and uh, hello everybody, and glad to be back to uh, complete this part of the uh, doubles game plan and understanding the angles that exist in doubles certainly much more complicated and much more uh, evident in doubles than in singles because of the size of the court and the fact that you have players at the net at the start of the point. And 
The thing that I think about when it comes to this serving in the ad side and liking to go to the center is that you are allowing your partner at the net to come out of the alley a little bit and take more balls that are going to come through the middle. So the only exception that I would take there is that if the player has a return that just is punishing you to no end and you're serving to the T and you can't really get them to be a little bit neutralized by that, then you need to mix it up and you need to go wide and get to the backhand side. There are some situations with players. John James is one that comes to mind who has just a tremendous backhand return of serve that if you're going out wide to this player, he will punishing you, he will punish you with that backhand in a few different ways. Maybe not with sheer power, but with the consistency and the fact that it's down at your feet all the time, your partner is not able to move out of the alley because he'll go right up the line. So in that case, you have to be very judicious about where you're going, what kind of serve you're making. And I agree with Bob totally that the do side and the add side are different animals when it comes to the placement of the serve. I like that serve to the T and the do side, particularly because it's first of all in the middle of the court, second of all, it's the backhand. So there's a good chance uh, that you're going to get a shot that may not be punishing you with pace and whatever. And then also, of course, your partner can be doing that poach a little bit more. Uh, you know, aggressively uh, in that side. Uh, but yes, it does depend on a couple of different variables. And it's true not to just play purely by the geometry. Exactly. So I think that there's a simple way to look at this. When we're making our decisions where we're going to serve the ball, geometry versus the weaker side, it's very similar to a drill that I do with my players all the time where the defensive team is playing both back. And when you get an approach shot situation in doubles and the opponents are both back, the geometry says hit the ball down the middle. But just imagine that both of their strong shots are in the middle. And one of them in particular has a weaker shot to the outside. In that case, so to speak, the, the weakness criterion would trump the geometry and you would go into the weakness rather than go up the middle. Would you agree with that, Scott? Or would you, uh, wouldn't you say at least some of the time that should be the case? Yes, uh, definitely, definitely agree with that. Uh, it, uh, it's good for everybody to know what the, ge the geometry allows you to do and how it dictates certain kinds of angles of return and that sort of thing. But you do then need to bring in the strengths and weaknesses of a particular opponent um, in general or on a given day to kind of round out your 
all all around comprehensive game plan about choosing the targets. And of course, you're going to be sharing this information with your partner up at the net. So part number two, I think we straightened that out pretty well in terms of how we go about making that decision. Part number two, when we were speaking about poaching uh, quite a bit in, in the first podcast, you mentioned using signals so that you and your partner can really disrupt the opponents with signals. And I never got a chance to speak up, but certainly at the club level, I really don't like signals. And I think there are a couple of reasons. Number one uh, is the fact that when pressure comes on, many times the server doesn't actually see the signal of the net player who thinks that they've given a clear idea of what we're gonna do. And they're running two separate plays because their communication didn't go through. So I guess that could be solved by the net player saying, yup, uh, uh, excuse me, the server saying yes or yup when, when they receive the signal so they know there's been a completed link. But I actually like talking better, just a quick conversation uh, between the players to make their decision. The other one is when the pros are using signals, they're typically, I think, saying where they're going to serve and whether or not the poach is on or off. They're signaling two different things. And the key thing there is where they're going to serve. Many club players can't really hit their targets precisely. So giving a signal of to as to what you're going to do, sometimes that puts a little too much pressure on the server, let's say, to have to execute a shot that they don't really feel that they have. What, what are your feelings about that with signaling and talking? That makes a lot of sense. As you get more advanced, you can, first of all, rely on the server to pinpoint uh, the accuracy of the serve so your play can go along as planned. And the, the talking actually gives a chance for the net player to give feedback to the server about, no, no, why don't we do this target instead of that target? Whereas you can't be doing that with signals that if you're just doing the signals, then uh, you're, um, you know, whoever's making the initial decision, you're just going with that play. You're not getting any uh, discussion about it. And you have a few, you have a few moments to talk it over. So that uh, I think makes a lot of sense at the club level. It also shows that players have to pay attention to practicing serving to the different targets and getting the confidence to do that in a match so that you can actually work out some of these more sophisticated plays because it can really disrupt your opponents when you have a well-oiled machine over there serving to a target and a player moving at the net, making it very difficult to get an aggressive return uh, back in play. Yeah, so going along with our idea of faking is part of being a good poacher. One thing I do like club players to do is to use signals as a giant fake. By that, I mean, 
the net, the server saying, yup, yup, nope. And the other team is like, what are they going to do? They start thinking. And what happens in tennis, Scott, when you're any player starts to think too much? I just, I just heard a, a great expression recently that says it all. Okay. Thinking is stinking in the match. <laughs> if you're thinking, you're stinking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that tells you, yes, I don't think you should be thinking. And if you can get your other, your opponents to start thinking about what's going on, you're disrupting them. And a second way that I like to use the talking, not every conversation between players has to be saying something of substance. So for example, one of my favorite things would, I'd go over to my partner and say, blah, blah, blah. Now it had the same effect of the, as to the other team. They start thinking, I wonder what they're up to now. But what blah, blah, blah did to, for my partner was say, I trust you make whatever decision you like here at this moment in the match and don't overthink it, just go for it. So, and that tends also to relax your partner when they hear a little joke or nonsense going on in the heat of the battle. And again, uh, I think we both agree when players are more relaxed, they're executing at a higher level. Yeah. And it gives also that, pause a moment for the server to get a little more relaxed because you're taking a little bit more time and you're not there at the line uh, getting ready to serve so quickly. It, it systematically will slow the server down slightly. So the other thing that talking does, and this is one of the finer points as you get more experience playing matches, is it changes the tempo between points. Some players love to play extremely fast, so they almost don't have time to think. And the, the faster the, the, they play, in other words, the less time between points, the better and better they get. So if you happen to be matched up against someone who's playing pretty quickly and you're not making many inroads, in doubles, one way to slow that time down and make them adjust and give them time to think, which as we just said, is a good thing for you. They're going to maybe get a little frustrated with that. So long as you stay within the 25 second rule. So is that something you were aware of managing when you were playing a match, the tempo? Yes. Uh, especially if things were not going well, I would definitely uh, work with my partner to control the tempo and try to annoy the other team within the rules, uh, not for them to have their rhythm and their speed of play to their liking, because we needed to do something else to get them off of, you know, that really solid play that they were showing and feeling good about. So it's not really gamesmanship because you do whatever you want to do within that 25 seconds. You need to, just like a, a pitcher on the mound in baseball, that pitcher can take more time or less time. And it's very important to 
keep some control over those things that you can use to enhance your own play and to, you know, hurt a little bit uh, the play of the opponent. So the final one, uh, I think we talked about it a little bit more in part one, but I was an advocate in regular position, uh, starting the point as the serving team of the server being able to move around along the baseline and not always serve from the same spot. I think you felt like that was asking a little too much, but I would only go back to what you said just a few minutes ago that practicing your serve and practicing it from different positions, not just hitting different targets is something that could make each of our players better. Do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I think that that would work. Um, I, I do know that it has to do with level. So as you go to the more advanced levels, and you do see this uh, from the world-class players, you will see a little bit more fluctuation in terms of the, where they're standing. I think that you have to be careful what level you're dealing with on the club level, that you don't have things complicate too much, uh, get you know more complicated than they need to be, uh, so that you're not you know creating another level of difficulty uh, for that player. So I think the uh, you know the level that you are dealing with is uh, important in terms of making that decision. Okay. So some other feedback we got was that our players would like to hear more about the different formations that we could use to start the point in an attempt to get our strengths playing into our opponent's weaknesses. So I think everyone knows the standard formation where the players servers back and the, has a net player up at the net position and the returner obviously is back with a hot seat player. Uh, when, when might you choose, Scott? Could you give us an example of when you'd say uh, from the serving team, you'd like to make an adjustment to that setup? The first, the first situation is that if the receiver is returning cross court very consistently and with power, and thus really putting the serving team on the defensive, you need to disrupt that pattern and that rhythm that they have because they're just consistently doing something that's hurting you. And what you're doing is you're changing the venue and you're taking away that shot that is just working like clockwork for them. And you're telling them, well, you're gonna have to do something else. And that very often creates a certain distraction or challenge to the receiver to do as well with a new target area than the previous one, which is just so standard. Everybody's ready to kind of do that. And you test the versatility of your opponent's return of serve if you are changing that position every once in a while, they have to take that into account and then they have to make an adjustment 
when it comes to controlling the return of serve. Yes, so I think you're talking about the Australian formation where the server's partner lines up on the same side at the net as the server, and the server goes then immediately after the serve and covers the open part of the court down the line. Uh, the other thing that that play does, let's just say, like you said, there is this very good return but then when you're playing on the diagonal, it also means that the net player of the opposition can make a good poach because there's a strong return and they can cut the ball off. When you go Australian, it's almost impossible for that net player to poach the next ball, even if the down the line return is still pretty good. So it, it takes away that poach. And I have a, unfortunately, it was a match I lost um, it was against your old buddy, Kirk Moritz and Bob Litwin with Peter Bromley in the national grass courts. And against me, I, I always teach, but I've learned better. I don't go Australian in the deuce. I was the deuce court player and they went Australian against me. And what it did was it took away my partner, Peter Bromley's backhand volley. I used to hit a good low return and he would cut to the middle. And this guy had one of the best backhand volleys ever seen in tennis. He would poach and put those balls away. All of a sudden now I had a return down the line. They volleyed right back at me. He couldn't cut the ball off. And I thought in retrospect, at the end of the match, I was like, wow, what a smart play they made. They took away one of our key things by changing the formation. So when you played with Kirk, uh, Scott, who, who was the brains there? Was, was it a shared experience or who was calling the plays? It was mostly a shared experience. And we played so much together uh, that we really had discussed so many different things that we uh, were on the same page. But I probably was more proactive in terms of uh, being analytical during the match and figuring out what changes should be made, uh, if any at all. Uh, but Kirk, very, very bright and, and intuitively good player, he completely understood what was going on and had very good input at times also observing certain kinds of repetitions that were hurting us and suggesting that we make a change. And very often we were totally on the same page in, in wanting to execute that. And you know, as a result, uh, gave us a lot of success uh, as a doubles team. So there's another formation. Uh, it's a slight change from the Australian formation. This is given various names, the I formation or the monster formation, where the net player actually straddles the center line, goes into a crouch, and then right after the ball crosses the net into the box, breaks one way or the other, and the returner is unsure of which way they're going to break, and hence you can pick off some easy poaches. What is your feeling on that formation? I like it as a another 
curveball to throw at the receivers. And I think that it has to be practiced a lot so that the server and the player that's in the center of the court are moving properly as a team as that, as, as that return is made. So whether that player is staying there in the middle because the cross court is really still not open to the receiver, but whether that player at the net is going to move and cover the line or fake or stay, it has to be totally in coordination with what the server is doing in terms of his target and also where he's going after he makes the serve. I mean, I like that formation. It is a little bit of a vulnerable uh, spot because you're crouching down. And so that means after the serve, you have to come up a little bit because you can't stay that low. And I think if the other team, the receiving team throws up a lob cross court, you're a little bit of trouble because they've gotten into the point now with a pretty good shot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I really don't teach it to even my very good club players, because it's very rare that the serve is strong enough to force the returner to just react to the ball. They usually have some time where if you're having to move and let's say cover the down the line, they can easily spot you, hold their shot, and go the other way. So I much prefer either a regular formation or an Australian formation. But we did talk also about, I don't think it's anything we ever did when we were playing, but it is possible to pull your net man back to the baseline and start both back. When would you do that, Scott? When you're the serving team? Yes. Yeah, I mean, you theoretically, you don't really want to have to do that. You, you want to be at the net and taking control and being able to put the ball away and putting pressure on your opponents. But if the receivers are just dominating a given player's serve and they're intimidating the net player with that return, with a lot of speed right at them, then it's a very good idea to get that player back to the baseline. Now, what is that receiver going to be able to do? Not the same power shot. And maybe they'll take the net, but you'll be in the point and you still have a good chance to, to win the point as opposed to just getting like obliterated when that receiver has a mismatched situation with the opposing net player. Exactly. So what, what we're trying to do, whether it, it, we're the serving team, like Scott said, we won't do it very often, go both back, hopefully not very often, or as a receiving team, if you decide to go both back at the end of the day, what you're trying to accomplish there is to lengthen the, the point. We want to have the opponents have to hit five or six shots to beat us, not one or two. And many times when you can change the point length by going to that formation, that can dramatically switch around what's going on in the court. Now, right. I would just mention one other thing when you go both back in either case is that 
It doesn't mean you don't want to get to the net, but most often it means that you're both waiting back and you're both waiting back. And then when you get your opportunity, you both come in. So you're always parallel with each other. One player isn't just making an isolated run to the net. Now, that being said, I've become a fan of Corey Goff and Katie McNally, watching them play doubles and grow as a team. And McNally has a really great volley, and Corey Goff obviously is good off the ground. They frequently go both back, and the first chance she gets, McNally goes solo up to the net after they get into the point, and Goff stays back. So depending upon how you match up with your partner, that is possible. But at the club level, I see a lot of players get themselves into trouble by making that isolated run and then getting caught at the service line and either missing or hitting a weak shot. Bob, one thing that we have not touched on that we should say real quickly is when you have these formations, where do you serve so that the thing doesn't backfire on you? And my feeling is that if you play Australian and you're taking away that cross court return and the space is open a little bit more down the line, you do not serve wide, especially in the deuce side if it's to the forehand. You would serve either at the player or at the tee because now that player in the Australian can cover a wider swath of court through the middle and pick off a return. And in the ad side, you might be able to get away with it more often as per our discussion previously, if that return of serve is a little weaker back over there, you may not have to worry about that down the line return quite as much because if it's a good serve out there wide, it might be tough for the receiver to do something very effective with the down the line. And so you could serve it out there and still have the Australian positioned player picking off more balls because it's coming, you know, from the backhand that you've just, you've determined is not going to, uh, you know, hurt you uh, in, in a higher probability. I agree completely. And I, I hope our listeners are now being made aware of how we pick serving targets based upon both the geometry and the strength weaknesses of our opponent, because that's a, that's a really, really good example right there. So I think we've taken a, another huge step today in terms of talking about how to make a good doubles game plan, reviewing what we did the first time, adding in a little bit more about what could be seen as disagreements, but in the larger context, were not disagreements. And then talking about the different formations. But before we sign off, I wanted to ask you, Scott, uh, what was the best doubles match you ever played and, and why? And we spoke before the podcast and uh, you suggested that each of us pick one win and one loss. So why don't you go first with uh, your two examples, please? So although there were so many memorable 
doubles matches that I played in my in my career, the the one that stands out in my mind is what is a match that was played uh, on the pro circuit in the American Express circuit uh, that went across the country and we were playing in Pasadena. And I was playing with a player that had been formerly in the top 100, Bill Lloyd from Australia. And we were playing against two very good uh, players in, in the first round, uh, Eric Van Dillen, very well-known American and Rick Fisher. Um, and I had so much fun in that match, even though we lost the match like seven, six, seven, six, we were doing things there because of the level that Billy Lloyd was playing at my partner. We were doing things with crossing and poaching and just having some tremendous doubles exchanges. Uh, and a lot of it really coming up at the net. And the match was always contended. So we lost in two tiebreakers. Unfortunately, Lloyd had been playing with a little bit of a bone chip in his elbow and was in pain. So I can imagine that if he had been totally healthy, we probably would have gone to the next round. But that was my, my taste of playing very, very well at a high level uh, on the circuit. And as opposed to the match that I won was with who you just spoke about, Kirk Moritz and I played against Peter Bromley and Jeff Arts at the Chestnut Ridge Classic. And Arts and Bromley were ranked like, like four or five or six in the nation in the 35 and overs. And they were very confident and very hot at that point. And for some reason or another, I felt like Superman that day. And we just went right through them because first of all, never missed a ball hardly. And second of all, I was crossing and taking and picking off balls all over the place and putting them away and you know, just getting like completely disbelief looks from Bromley and Arts. And it just goes to show you that on a given day, if you're moving and you're anticipating and you are seeing that ball really well, you are going to execute and perform at a highest level. But I just thought that that was like a, a, a pinnacle in, in some local uh, tournaments that uh, I had experienced. How about you, Bob? Well, I, I would just say I, I was commenting to a few of my lessons this week. I, t I said something like this. I looked back on my career and said, gee, when you played, what was your best shot? I asked of myself and I came up, the answer was my volley. And I think you might be giving a similar answer by this story where you and Kirk and you were moving around at the net and that sort of thing, would you agree that your volley was the shot that really you could count on and it was the one that separated you from the pack? My backhand volley, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when Butch Seawagon uh, wrote this uh, big tennis book uh, years ago when I was at East River Tennis working for him, 
he chose me to demonstrate the backhand volley and their pictures in that book and discussions about the volley. Um, but they took my, they took a picture of my backhand volley in various, various uh, times of the, executing the shot. So uh, I knew that that was definitely something that was being acknowledged by the tennis world. And uh, definitely uh, on the level of Bromley, maybe not as good as Bromley's, but certainly in the same category uh, mm -hmm. in terms of consistency and controlling the pace, being able to hit it uh, with a tremendous amount of uh, of aggressive velocity. Okay, so my, um, as we wrap up, my, my two examples. First, uh, the loss was actually a match I played against you and you were with Peter Bromley and I was playing with Jeff Arts. So it was like a small little club there. This was in the finals of the Eastern Indoors down at Stadium Tennis. And this court was an extremely fast, hard court. And this was not, my, I mean, I played at Chestnut Ridge on the indoor heart rule all the time. Every time I went out there, of course, we played a few rounds already, so I was a little bit more used to it. But I remember playing the entire match only saying one thing, bounce hit. Because if I just thought too much, get your racket there sooner, don't take too big a backswing, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It was too much thinking. All I did was let my body play the ball. And I said, bounce hit. And my partner got a horrible start in the match. You guys were up a set and a break. I was playing fantastic, making like 90% of my returns, bullet at the feet. And I didn't let the fact that he was off throw me. And all of a sudden, he started to play. And I think we ended up losing either 6-4 or 7-5 in the third all credit to you guys. I still remember the one thing in that match on one point where my serve was broken. I did not split step coming to the net and I missed the shot. I lost my <laughs> discipline on one point and it cost me the match. That that's how fine a line there is between winning and losing. Were you serving to me or Bromley? Uh, I think it was you because it would have been the deuce court side. Yep. Right. Yeah. And then in terms of win, it would have been probably a match I played with Jeff also, uh, maybe the year before or the same year when we won the New Jersey State men's finals on outdoor red clay at the Arlington Players Club. And I was just so tuned in to what our opponents were going to do. I was telling Jeff before virtually every point, they're going to try this, they're going to try that. And I was right, like 90% of the time. So he knew the play. It's like I was so completely involved in the game that I could have him extra ready for whatever play they were going to run. And then, of course, when you know what's coming, you execute so much better. So in right. terms of the mental game, and I played pretty well, too. Uh, Jeff was the put away player in that matchup. But uh, I set him up a lot, and I really kept him involved in the game. He he played a beautiful match. Um, one you other the thing, quarterback. Just, you, you were the quarterback on that team. I was the quarterback. Uh, but maybe I don't think it's worth another full podcast, Scott. But it, just give us your secret to being able to get partners who were better than you. 
How do, because a lot of players want some W's. They say, if I could only play with him or her, how did you go? How did you do it? <laughs> that's a that's a that's a fantastic question. <laughs> and I'll I'll tell you, it was very um I was very conscious of it. And what I what I actually did was I figured out what it was that would make me a valuable presence to being on a tennis court with some of these other players who had already been on the circuit, had higher rankings, but to, to, to find out what they valued and what they needed and wanted in terms of a, pra a practice partner um, and, and then elevating that to a playing partner. So you develop a relationship with that player by finding some things that you have in common and you know, they have to like you. They have to want to have you come along. So you could be like second fiddle and you could like be a compliment to them. And so they would see your value and it would be good for them. And thus you would then be included in their tennis world. And mm -hmm. that's what I did with Bert Hoyt and Billy Lloyd and Ricky Meyer. Uh, you know, you find out how to get into their world and, you know, become a participating uh, entity to a positive outcome that they would see so that they would invite you and they would feel comfortable with including you. And I tell you, made a huge difference in my tennis and <laughs> my enjoyment and in my career. Great. Well, Scott, uh, thank you again for today. I just want to remind all of our listeners, we, we love to hear from you in terms of future subjects. And I think the next one we're going to do came from one of the four five five zero guys in my men's singles league over at Chestnut who said, it doesn't matter against whom I'm playing, someone better, someone the same, someone weaker. I start slow in every single match. Can you help me with that? So we're going to do our next podcast on starting slow and what you can do about it, how you can change that around. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Bob. Really had a good time. Everybody have great holidays. <laughs>